How you sleeping? You sleep okay? Getting any shut-eye? Is it possible that there's a silver lining, another silver lining in this pandemic that you might be getting some better shut-eye? Is that is that true, or is it the total opposite, that the anxiety the of the change in your schedule, the constant fluctuations of you know, restrictions or this or that, or just upended any kind of sleep you might have? I can't sleep. I can't sleep. Colin Espy is a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Oxford and joins me on the line. Hi, Colin. Hi, Alan. How are you? I'm... I'm okay. Mostly I can't sleep is is the difficulty. I, what, what's your research telling you about what people's experience has been over the pandemic when it comes to sleep? Well, it's up there. You mentioned a few people who sleep better, and there is a small percentage of people who are perhaps sleeping a little bit better, but the majority of people who are having sleep difficulties are folks who didn't have those problems before or people who had some problems and it simply got worse. And I think the reason for that is you know, several, but one of them is that we're dealing with a, a time of uncertainty, Alan. You know, it's a time when the brain's having to deal with all kinds of new stuff during the day that doesn't have an answer to it. So it leaves us in this state of being hyper alert. And this can make it difficult for us to uh, downregulate our arousal at bedtime. And, and also when we're waking up during night, it's almost like our brain is at a different set point. It's, it's ready to face challenges, which makes it more difficult to get back to sleep again. So that's part of it. The other piece is just our routines have changed, haven't they, Alan? Yours have probably as well. Working at home, um, you know, is and in, in sometimes for people in cramped situations, having less personal space. So th- there's both the physiology there, if you like, to do with the human threat response. But there's also the practical aspects of our lifestyle has changed. Can you explain to me a little bit of of the science of how the brain works and what makes us sleepy and what might now be interrupting that? Sure. So what happens is that during the course of the day, uh, we're awake. And the the longer we're awake, uh, the more sleepy we would normally become, just in the same way as if you hadn't had a drink of water, you would get thirstier and thirstier. And this is called the homeostatic drive, in one case for water, the other case for sleep. But something called the body clock, the circadian system, actually keeps us alert and allows us not to need to drink, if you like, from the sleep cup till nighttime, keeps us awake during the day. And then the circadian gate opens um, so that we fall asleep at nighttime. And the regulation of our sleep wake patterns has been like that really since the time, well, a few months after birth, when we have a consolidated nighttime sleep. Um, And gradually the daytime sleep that we have uh, becomes reduced uh, to just a nap or to disappear altogether, at least in most cultures. So we have a separate nighttime phase and uh, a daytime phase. And nature has defined it in this way um, so that sleep can provide the, all the recovery that we need for physical functions as well as for mental functions. You know, sleep is a very, very busy time. We, we might think of it almost like a, a, a car that's in the garage at night and, and switched off and, and, and left. Uh, but actually what happens is that the brain looks forward to sleep at night because there's so much it can go on and do when we are kind of out of the way, Alan. A bit like when you put the kids to bed or they're off to school, you can go on with stuff. The brain gets on with things during the night, regulates our emotion, helps us to deal with uh, our memory and consolidate our memory, as well as a whole host of physical functions um, that enable us to be able to manage uh, during the daytime. I'm speaking with Colin Espy, who's a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Oxford. My 13-year-old son 
asks every morning. He has for years. He asks everybody in the house every morning, how was your sleep? And, you know, inevitably my answer would be, well, great, not so great, any, any number on the spectrum. His is always great because he's 13. Yeah. And I just, I often, I was talking to him actually about this this morning. You know, like, I, what I wouldn't give for the sleep of a teenager. It, is it just age that changes our ability to sleep? Well, you know, these metaphors are used, aren't they, Alan? Because we're sleeping with a baby sometimes, don't we? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> newborn babies sleep, you know, huge amounts of time. And teenagers are hard to get up in the morning. I guess your 13-year-old's a bit like that. Yeah, it may be difficult to get to sleep initially, but hard to waken up when it's time to go to school. And we were all a bit like that. You know, so at different ages and stages uh, of life, the, the um, amount of sleep that we have, the pattern of it does change to some degree. But our need for sleep never changes. It never goes away. You never, you never um, cease to need a meal during the day. You still would be hungry, wouldn't you? You still need oxygen. And in the same way, uh, although your patterns uh, may change and, and our body systems age uh, and uh, so on, it, the, the actual fundamental need for sleep uh, is still there at all stages in our, in our life. Teenage years are particularly interesting ones because there's what we call a phase delay in, in the body clock. That is a tendency to become a bit more like a night owl. I don't know if you're 13 year olds like that. Yes. It's up playing Fortnite all night. Yeah, yeah. But then is that because he's playing Fortnite or is that because he can't sleep? Then he fills in by playing Fortnite. You know, I think it's I think it's that these two things interact. Um, and that tells us something about the way that uh, we live our lives. You know, the, the, the way that we um, establish our routines helps our physiology to, to um, you know, fit into its place, if you like. But also we have to respect uh, the fact that these are biological rather than lifestyle factors that we need oxygen, water, food, and sleep. And these are really the four principal ingredients that we need for life. We've talked a couple of times about routine and and disrupted routine because of the pandemic. Maybe you could provide some, you know, just some basic advice for those who might be struggling with sleep in terms of establishing and keeping a routine for good sleep. Yeah, thanks, Alan. That's really important. I mean, what we found... uh, you know, in our studies, our research on this from big international study we did recently is that insomnia symptoms, uh, you know, about a third of the population or more now have insomnia symptoms. That is the difficulty getting to sleep or staying asleep or waking up early and not being able to get back to sleep. Uh, and almost 20% of the population, you know, two thirds of those have actually got what you might call a disorder that requires treatment. Uh, and what we know from the clinical guidelines is the best treatment for insomnia is something called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not actually sleeping pills. Like, I think a lot of people might think that, you know, the medical treatment of choice would be sleeping pills, but that isn't the case. Um, they're only really effective in very short courses uh, of use. And what cognitive behavioral therapy does is two things. First of the cognitive piece, it addresses the, one of the enemies of sleep, which is the racing mind. You know how difficult it is to get to sleep when your mind's busy, when it's full of things. And sometimes your mind turns to trying to get to sleep, doesn't it? And, and have you not often found that the harder you try to get to sleep, the more difficult it is? Um, because we're designed to sleep more automatically. Um, just in the same way as during our conversation here, Alan, we've been breathing all the way through. Um, but, but we haven't done it deliberately. <laughs> it, it just happens. 
And the best sleepers are people who just fall asleep naturally without thinking about it. So that cognitive piece helps the person with insomnia get back to that stress-free approach to sleep uh, and be able to sleep without thinking about it. And the B part, the behavioral part, as you were saying there earlier, Alan, is very much about getting into a pattern. And one of the things that's happened during COVID is our pattern has loosened up quite a bit because we don't have the same kind of markers there. We we don't have to get up to to go uh, to get the train to get to to work, and we can we can uh, lie in, for example, later, start work a bit later, or we could work longer in the evening. Um, we're not we're not get set times for things in this, the way that we did have before, and that's not particularly helpful for sleep because it likes to be in a pattern. So getting it back in a, into a routine uh, with regular um, uh, rising times uh, uh, in the morning and, and regular times for going to bed uh, is helpful. And to try and keep that, what we call the sleep window, rather shorter rather than, uh, than longer, because sometimes if you're in bed for too long, you're not able to get consolidated sleep. It becomes broken up. So CBT is the approach that is, is most effective. And the good news too, is that it works very quickly if we get ourselves back into that routine and begin to, uh, to address the racing mind uh, using this sort of cognitive approach, taking the approach that a good sleeper would take. That's fascinating, Colin. I, you know, I know somewhat about CBT, but I, I had never really thought of it uh, as, I had always thought of it more as a, a, something to battle depression and anxiety rather than, than sleep. So that well, is so, so interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll give you an example quickly, Alan, if it's helpful. So if you, if you waken in the middle of the night, let's suppose you waken at three in the morning and you're a good sleeper. What does your, what does your mind tell you? Your mind tells you, ah, oh, it's three o'clock. I get time for another three hours sleep, three or four hours sleep. Because <laughs> um, you're in the habit of just turning over and going back to sleep and, you, and you've not got a thought pattern there that keeps you awake. But if you get insomnia, you're more like, ah, oh, it's only three o'clock. I'm awake. You know, I'm, how am I going to go back to sleep? Um, if I don't get back to sleep, uh, I've only had three hours sleep. If I don't go back to sleep, so I'm not going to be able to cope tomorrow. I'm not going to be a function. I need to try and get to sleep. So you can see there are two completely different mental approaches. One learned through the process of developing an insomnia difficulty and, and, and if you like, being a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the, the um, and so, so the person with insomnia so much deserves to get to sleep, don't they? Because they desperately want to. Whereas the person who's a good sleeper is just not thinking about it. And because they're not thinking about it, they just go back to, back to sleep quickly. Um, so, you know, that's the same kind of thing one might do with depression and thinking about the way that you think about your own thoughts and the way you think about yourself. Um, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's about taking a different mental position uh, on our thought processes is the cognitive part of CBT, whether it's applied to depression or whether it's applied to insomnia. Colin, great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, absolute pleasure, Alan. Sleep well. Thank you. I, I don't sleep that well. Uh, Colin Espy is a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Oxford, Oxford. And because I don't sleep well, that's why I'm fascinated about talking about it.